Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I'm very lucky to be with the CEO of Pennies, Alison Hutchinson. And Pennies is um, a digital charity box, really, that you, you put digitally your money in it. I'm going to hear all about that from Alison. So, Alison, welcome. Thank you. We've known each other, I think, for, what, five or six years? Absolutely. And we did a little bit of coaching together all those years ago. Um, but what an incredible success story you had. Tell us a bit about you, uh, just a little soundbite about yourself and, and the charity. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes, well, I guess I was born and brought up in the west coast of Scotland uh, and very much was working in family, small family businesses from the minute I could walk and talk and actually help support people. And from there, I went on to, I, I always hoped I would go on the stage, but the reality is I was never good enough to do that. So I didn't. And I went to university. Uh, I then got an opportunity in technology with IBM, so oh, yeah, very yeah. early on that actually how technology transforms businesses has always been a great passion of mine. Mm, so I worked with IBM for about 15 yeah. years before I crossed the divide and then worked in financial services uh, more as the customer then a, rather okay. than as the deliverer of technology. And then went on through to working with retail, financial services, and now run pennies as a charity and sit in three boards as a non-executive. Wow, that's a busy time. A lot going on for you. And, and what would you say for people, uh, the executives listening to this, what, what essentially is Pennies? And if they were interested as retailers, what could they do? So. Well, Pennies is really very simple. It's taken the UK's most favourite way of giving, which, as you said, is dropping coins in a box and just recognise we're living a cashless life, we're shopping online. And actually, for a lot of people, they're quite worried about being able to give regularly to charity, and yet they're incredibly generous. So what we do as pennies is work with retailers where they nominate the charities that they and their customers and colleagues want to get behind. And when you're shopping either in store or eating in a restaurant or shopping online, you can click, add a few pennies, and they come together to make such a difference yeah. to these many, many charities. So it's about giving micro, but to create a macro impact. Well, it's brilliant. And and Lee has been very inspired by you with, with her charity, Inspiring Leadership Trust, who um, we're going to be looking to find retailers who we can nominate so that money can flow back to, to the charity for the vulnerable girls. But thank you for what you do. And I, I've really been inspired by that. And, and talking about inspiration, um, who, who are the kind of people that inspire you and what is it about them? Yes, thank you, Jonathan. Well, I'm one of those people that don't have one big figure that inspires me. In fact, I see everyday people inspiring me in what they do with their lives and how they do it. Clearly close to home, my mum was one of the most inspiring people I worked for. She was uh, the daughter of a gardener, met my dad. They, they ran lots of successful small businesses. Then sadly, my dad passed away and she okay. created another successful business. But she always listened. She was always approachable. Everybody would go to Auntie Betty to find out what they should do next. She had great faith. And quite frankly, she just wanted the world to be a little bit better. 
And that for me is so inspiring. So mm. when I work with so many charities, uh, just the other week, I heard this most articulate young woman who sadly was abused from a very young age by her father. Um, she then got very bad depression and she found the Duke of Edinburgh. And that gave her, in her words, a formula for life, which even to this day, she said, really helps her in how she balances her physical side, her mental side. And she's now a fundraiser for one of the UK's largest charities. Amazing. People like that are so inspirational because yeah. they've taken their life and they've turned it round. They've sought help. And again, I still think there's too many executives that say, I don't want to coach, that's a weakness. It's a strength if you can get help to be even better than, than where, who you are and what you're doing. And so for me, it's those everyday people that inspire me every single day of the week and make me try and be the better version of myself. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's great to hear that. And indeed, you, you uh, are someone who's constantly learning and growing. In fact, you, you said yourself, that's why we met, you were prepared to say, look, I'm doing well, but I'd, I'd like to be, go from good to great. You know, how can I be even better? And that's, that's how we met. So if you look back over your leadership journey and only the strong can be vulnerable as we discussed mm -hmm. before. So what do you think looking back was some of the I don't know, leadership style that you had at the time, which didn't kind of work as well as it it is doing now because you people speak very highly of you now as a, as a leader what was it that you weren't doing well but you you realized and it's changed and it's affected in a positive way the leadership style you have now well i think thank you jonathan i i think it's it's a couple of things one of the things i found is once you put yourself into the receiver's shoes and work out how you're coming across as an individual rather than just carrying on through your executive career as yourself you learn so so much mm. And one of the things I learned is I am just naturally an optimist, passionate, positive person who every day I work out what we're going to do a bit better today. Um, but that can be quite overwhelming for people who can be on the other end thinking, well, I'm not that lucky, I'm not that positive. And it can become a little bit more aggressive mm. rather than positive. And so I've learned I can't change who I am, but I can learn how to dial that back a bit yeah. and make sure I really understand the individuals and let them talk, let them really come across so you understand how you can put your message across in a way that works for them, not for you. That's a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah, great. And finally, what would, um, what would be a, a couple of top tips that you might give for other people about that you found has worked not just for you, but for people around you, that's really good sort of leadership advice? I think for me, the biggest thing I've learned from all the people I've worked with, and those that I would say haven't performed as well, never mind the many that do, is in, in leadership positions, you spend so long working out what to do and the decisions you need to make. Quite often you forget it's how you do it that mm. makes you as a leader. And so for me, if there's one thing I would say is put at least the same amount of energy into how you're going to deliver messages and how you're going to transform mm. as you have into what you're actually going to do because that's what leaves the legacy and that's what leaves the history. That is so spot on. And, and, and to build on what you said, someone once said to me, people forget what you say, they forget what you do, but they never, ever forget how you made them feel and, and, and how you make them feel and how, how you put things across to them are very important.
And um, you may be right, but dead, as my old sergeant major would say to me, that you, you think you've got it right, you've said right in a certain way, but it, it's landed really badly with people, don't you think? Absolutely. And when it does, do you know what? That little word sorry mm. is so important because we should never forget. I probably still do come across a bit strong sometimes, mm. but if you've recognised you've maybe slightly got the wrong edge, I'll say, look, sorry, I think I've met, can we just... Re you've just got to remember that we're all human at the end of the day. Yeah. We're all vulnerable. We all make mistakes. We should all just recognise it, apologise, learn from it, and make yourself a little bit better. Brilliant. Alison, thank you very much indeed. It's thank been, you, Jonathan. It's been great spending time with you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra, where Alison Hutchinson and I will be talking about her life, experiences, leadership, inspiring leadership, and anything we feel to talk about. So, Alison, welcome back. Thank you, Jonathan. So, I was really interested. We touched very briefly on your life and uh, the influence of your parents. T tell me a bit about how they've shaped you and your upbringing and the values that you have as a leader today. Thank you, Jonathan. Yes, I, I mean, I know a number of people say that their parents really do, and I think parents really do have an influence on their children, but we were incredibly close. We used to call it the little family unit, and yeah. my dad was called Charlie, so it was Charlie's Angels, which was my <laughs> mum and my sister and I, That's who, nice. whatever we did, there was always Charlie's Angels around. Um, and I think, you know, they both came from very humble backgrounds. Uh, at the time, my dad was Catholic, my mum was Protestant. When they came together, that was where, quite a challenge. Where in Scotland? It was just in north of Glasgow, so oh, in yeah. Helensburgh, in oh, Barton. Oh, wow. That was So that unusual. was very unusual at the time. And in fact, uh, sadly, my mum's passed away and my dad passed away very young. But, uh, but when we're going back through all the information, unusually, the actual, the, the, our minister married them in the local hotel, which wow. when you go back all that yeah, time, days, it just was so unusual. And I think as a result, and we all got on well as a family now, so both sides of the family are both very tight and very close. But I think it was quite hard yards for my yeah, mum and dad yeah. in the early days. Because, I mean, parts of Glasgow were, were like parts of sort of Belfast where it was ghettos of Protestant versus Catholic, wasn't it? I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I absolutely understand people's strength of faith and I, yeah. I respect all faiths. But I think we've got to remember underneath it all, whatever our faith, we're human beings and yeah. humans can get on together and it shouldn't be divisive. And it should be different. And that was the upbringing that your parents had, isn't it? They, they brought you up with that kind of attitude. Very okay. much so. And, and tell me more about you know, the young you. You talked about acting. Uh, and and uh, acting, darling. I, I can see you occasionally on stage. You're very good when you're talking to all the uh, the donors of the uh, Penny's charity and uh, and all the volunteers who you have working for you. There's there's a marvelous bit of uh, of acting going on, but in a nice way. It's not it's not inauthentic. I mean, it it comes across as an inspiration. But tell me a bit a bit more. Well, I think when I was young and growing up and my mum and dad formed a number of small family businesses, electricians, dry cleaners, bed mm. and breakfasts. So from the minute I could walk and talk, I had to go work for a living. Right. And when we went working, we were giving back to charity. So my dad would arrange these big events where we were running around selling tickets or doing the race cards so that we could raise money for charity. So I was always brought up 
that you've got to work hard, but you've got to give back to the communities wow. that you're serving. Yeah. And that's very much served kind of who I am and what I do. And so when I wasn't working in the family business, I was never really one that kind of got on at school. In fact, probably one of my little things I should never admit to, but I never really read a book at school. They used to plead for me to read a comic. Yeah. And my mum, bless her, read all my books and I passed all my English exams through my mum's input, <laughs> which is a terrible admission. And then, and, and sadly, when she passed away, she couldn't understand when I sit in all these boards now reading 600 pages of board papers at a weekend <laughs> to prepare. She doesn't know what's happened to me. What, what was the change? When did it change from you not reading to you then really getting to read? Because you had to for the job? Because I had to. Because yeah. it needs months. You had to. I was more of a numbers person, but you have to read. And by the way, when you start reading, you do learn how much amazing insight there is out there that if you don't read, you can't really benefit from, although I do love the odd podcast we're here today, where you can listen and actually really learn from it. So I'm a yeah. great fan of that. If one of my board papers could come on a podcast, I'd be a very happy yeah. bunny. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's interesting because as a recovering dyslexic, I, I find my easiest, easiest way of learning is, is auditory. But I also watch videos, and, and in the earlier podcast with um, Nathan Newton-Willington, Nathan developed himself and changed his life um, as a 30-year-old, well, before his 30s, by watching videos on YouTube. And if, if YouTube hadn't been around, I don't know how he would have changed. He probably wouldn't have done because he didn't read at all. Mm. So uh, do you like listening as well as reading? Absolutely. I'd much prefer to listen than I would because I just learn more. And I think you get more of the, I don't know, the tone and the context. In black and white, you get exactly what's black and white. Mm. But when you hear there's tones, there's emotion. And for me, that works well. Yeah. Which is probably why I found myself kind of then going into dancing and acting. Oh, yeah? So when where, I was, where did you do that? So I did that in the west of Scotland. So I yeah. get involved in all disciplines from tap and ballet to highland, modern jazz, oh, song right. and dance, although I can't really sing, but I could get a song across if I had to. Wouldn't say it's a strong point. Um, and I then went on to join the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. Oh, wow. At the same time, I was at the University of Strathclyde and then coming home to earn a bit of money to pay for my, my, my petrol so I could go back up and do it all That's again. <laughs> so it was great. And I loved my dancing and I loved my stage work. But as I say, I did fleetingly think a dream I might be able to go on the stage. But while I loved it and I was okay, I would never have been good enough, Jonathan. Yeah. And so so that wasn't the, the line you went down. How did you get into, because you, you've worked for some very interesting different businesses. IBM was one of them. Um, and a lot of the sort of retail banks. How did you get into that side? Well, I think having recognised that I'm not sure I'd ever make it in stage and listening to my father that said, well, you've got to earn a living girl, where I was very much brought up with a great business model, actually, which is very simple, which was make sure you focus on the customer. Make sure you get great people around you because you can be nowhere as an individual. And my dad yeah. taught me that very yeah, early very, on. Very wise advice. Make sure you make more money than you spend, because yeah. if you get into too much debt, you can't find a way out yeah. and then give back to the communities you serve. That's a great philosophy. And that was the upbringing you had. That was the upbringing I had. That's the business model I run by today. I just spend even more time giving to the community than yeah. uh, giving back. But, but that's where I come from. And so when I it was kind of came through university, it was like, well, you've got to get a job, girl. Uh, I was very fortunate at the time they had the milk round. Wait, sorry, just uh, you, yeah. you reminded me, you've got to get a job, girl. Um, I think many of the, the younger generation now live longer with their parents and don't get a job early enough and perhaps go to university and things like this, but, but don't earn money while they're at university, expect bank of mum and dad to pay for them. And it's not true for all, but, but I, I don't think there is that driven 
um, power from the parents. We try and look after them and and be you know, helicopter mums and dads. Um, that that with certainly with your parents and and, and my mother, that that they had this pressure on you to have to go out there and earn and work hard and give back to the community. What do you, what do you think? Do you think it's changed much or? I think it has changed, um, but not for everybody. No, not, not for everybody. You can't, it's not one size fits all. It, it really isn't. And, and I think there's a number of people out there that are probably in exactly a similar position that we were in. And, and actually you've got that hard love where, yeah. you know, I've always known that my mum and dad loved me, whatever I did, and yeah. I've tried to do exactly the same for my kids. But there's no what, doubt... What, what age are your kids now? They are, my youngest is 16, is Clara. Yeah. I've got a son, Fraser, who's 20, and Naomi, who's uh, 23 and just about to start her first job, having travelled around. So that's that's one that's ready to go off What's now. What's she going to go and do? She's working for a consultancy firm. Okay. And, uh, and it's quite interesting, actually. She managed completely through her own work. She studied economics and sociology at Edinburgh. Uh, and through her own contact, she got an opportunity to have an interview with Beringa and got herself an internship and then was deeply disappointed to begin with when she found out she was going to be working in the banking sector because she said, Mummy, I was never going to go into banking and loved it so much she's joining their banking practice. Oh, that's really nice. So, so never say never. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's your, your children now. And um, so how, how did you make that transition from, you know, doing the tap and the dance and... Uh, all in the west of Scotland. Uh, and then, you know, you find yourself, what, in London? Or did you move from I Edinburgh? started working to, in Newcastle, actually. Oh, yeah? Yes, which is why I'm a can, Newcastle can, United can, fan. Can, can you give me a Geordie accent? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> Come on, you're an actor. <laughs> exactly, well, that's why I wasn't good enough, Jonathan. Absolutely. Why, I, man? Absolutely. Um, my son would do it much better than I would. Um, but, yes, yeah, so when I went on the milk grounds where there was all these different roles and, and people like Marks and Spencers decided I wasn't going to be good in retailing. Um, but I actually went to university at six. So I qualified at 19. Wow. And when I looked around, I suddenly had all these opportunities from... You went to university at... 16. How did you do that? Scotland enables you to go to university really? much younger. And wow. uh, and I was never really an academic. I worked really hard to get a ticket to move to the next dance, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah. So I worked hard because I wanted to go to university. I was the first to go to university in my family. Right. And then worked hard because I really had to get a job because my dad said, this is getting you on to getting a job. Yeah. So and when I looked around, I suddenly thought technology is the single biggest thing that's changing industries. And at the time, it was big processing, you know, like the old CPUs we used to talk about and how yeah. much computing power each unit you could get out. But I suddenly realised that I thought technology was going to be the single biggest thing that would change businesses. And it has been. And I think it possibly has yeah. been. And so my whole life, I started an IBM in Newcastle with a mortgage oh, yeah. uh, in a little flat. Uh, and I remember I was so proud of myself because I'd done it all myself, only to know my dad and mum came down to check it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and with you working with IBM, did you, did you come, because throughout our experiences, we meet good leaders and we meet bad leaders. And Alistair Kett in his podcast talked about the fact that when you're with good leaders who really inspire you and motivate you and develop you and grow you, you don't really sort of realize at the time, you just know you're enjoying yourself and you can't wait to go to work and you can't get, a, you know, can't wait to get out, out of bed and go and do something that makes a difference and be recognized and appreciated. But when you're working for a toxic man or woman leader, you know instantly and you're grumbling about it to all your friends and your relations and your parents. Um, in IBM, did you experience both styles? I did. And I think IBM, certainly in its day, 
was a very sales focused culture yeah. and sales can be very arrogant and they can be like quite greedy and they can assume they're always right yeah. um, and for me I'm a great believer of try your best and keep trying and sometimes you don't make it but you know what you try again you'll get your chance whereas IBM was all about results and you had to deliver and so you got some leaders that were so sales focused it became you were in their gang or you weren't, weren't going to get on at all oh, really? and therefore I think for particularly being a female you had to really learn to how you would work with those because you had to to get yeah. on but somehow stay true to yourself so you could move on yeah. uh, and therefore I found that come completely sales, quite male-dominated environment, one which has taught me so much that served me well today as I've gone on. What would be a couple of things you'd take away? I mean, often we learn how not to do things. Everybody you meet has something to teach you, if only you'd listen. Um, maybe how not to do things. But what, what did you learn from that that shaped the kind of leader you are today? I think what I learned from that was to sometimes look out for the underdog and yeah. understand if they're the underdog because they're being overshadowed by stronger people, but actually have huge potential. Yes. Because I think you find people in organizations who have been cast aside as not good enough or not able to grow, which when you actually find them and you listen to what they need to help grow, and if you sponsor them and support them, I just think there's so many more talented people in an organization that aren't found. Yes. That's and that's taught me a lot of my leadership. And, and one of the challenges for me um, early on was, and I guess this might sound a little bit arrogant, I don't mean it that way, but when I was working with a coach, they helped me understand I was actually better than I ever thought I was. Mm -hmm. I wasn't great, but I was better than I thought I was. So when I recruited, my focus was always to try and bring the best people around me because that's what I was taught. And by you doing that, you can fly. But because I didn't recognize maybe my skill and capability, I wasn't doing that as well as I should have done. And that was a real big lesson for me about how do you maybe not accept that you're maybe better than you are, because I, I still don't. I still worry about failing too, far too often. But actually by recognizing that I could get people that were even better than I thought, which meant that I could grow faster, which meant organizations could do better and everyone succeeded. Uh, that's really, really interesting. And talking about uh, bringing out the best in you, and you talked about you, you've had different coaches. Uh, looking back over time, I mean, how many coaches do you reckon you've worked with over time? Over time, I've probably worked, I would say I've worked closely with two coaches, yourself and one other, Yeah. but worked more lightly with three or four others, sometimes okay. in a team environment rather yes. than an individual environment. Good. Okay. So so with those different people, what do you, what have you observed that they, they can do to help A, the team and B, the individual? What, what, what would you say? Well, I think it depends whether you as an individual want to work with the coach. So I yeah. think coaches can only be great if an individual wants a coach. Yeah. Because I've seen too many people get coaches because they have to, because that's how they're going to grow, but they didn't really treat them seriously. Mm. And so for me, I got so much from my coach by being totally vulnerable mm. and sharing and, and building trust with them yeah. to be able to share everything, both what's going on in life at home mm. as well as the work, because I, I'm sorry, I'm not a believer of you can, I mean, I try, I, I talk to my colleagues sometimes about being Mr. Ben, do you remember that old oh, yes. Mr. Ben, where he'd go in and he'd turn around and he'd come out? Because I think so often we take the baggages from home into the office mm -hmm. and that's not the office's issue, but it is going on in your head. So you need to learn to be that Mr. Ben. Yeah. But I think if you're 
really honest with an individual and a coach and you really let them talk to all the people you work with yes. and hear all the things that you're not doing well, then I think the coach can really, in a, in a creative way and in a thoughtful way, help you understand what's not working and to give you the confidence to try different things. Yeah. Because particularly when you get more senior, you've probably got there by doing certain things you know always work. But if you really want to grow, you've got to do the things you don't do so well. That is so true. And one of the approaches that I find works very well is, as you say, the 360 feedback. Um, we use the Inspire Leadership tool for that. But then you assess yourself and compare it to the 20 other people. And, and is there a delta change? You know, Have you read yourself correctly as, as others experience you? Uh, or are you living in a parallel universe and you think you're fantastic and they're going, I don't trust this person at all or whatever it is. Yeah. That's interesting. And then the other most interesting thing is I often do telephone interviews with people. About Of those 20, about eight of them. Uh, and then you write up a report from those interviews. So you get subjective and objective. And then you give the report to the leader and say, you choose two behaviours that, that people want you to be working on. You're good at many things, so let's leverage those. But you choose two behaviours that you think uh, other people believe that if you just improve those a little bit, 1% improvement would make a massive difference to the performance of the organisation and how you can unleash the power of the teams you lead. Mm -hmm. Because it's not about the superman or superwoman, it's about, it's about their influence on others and how they can unlock the potential of others. I find that incredibly powerful because too often coaches and individuals have a nice chat in a, a room and everybody else goes, I don't know what they were talking about, I haven't seen any change in her or him. Um, and it's a big investment. So this is why I think where you can, uh, to have some guaranteed measurable leadership growth where you're measuring and throughout the process, then you remeasure at the end or even at midway point uh, as what has everybody else seen them change? Not the coach and the coachee having a bit of a, um, almost colluding and going, yeah, yeah, it was really good, good use of the money. No, but what does everybody else notice? Uh, and that's, that's far more powerful and measurable growth. I think that's interesting. So you've, always been interested in growing, developing, and you continually have. So take me through the different roles that you've done. Yes, and it was interesting listening to you there, Jonathan. I was thinking one of the areas which I've really struggled with and, and only now beginning to come to terms with is I never believed I was a workaholic. Um, and, uh, you so are. I know I so okay, It took me a while to get there, Jonathan. But Help so, me, I'm a workaholic, so am I. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I, I take one to no one, isn't yeah. it? But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you go through the denial and then you go through, okay, I'm going to time my emails so they only come during working hours, <laughs> which I did for a bit. And that kind of works. So you get little tools and techniques, but it's only once you recognize yourself for who you are and you admit it that you are but you don't expect the same of others so you completely change what your expectation is from others uh, as you but go it through. is hard though but when, when hard. the leader goes look look you know I'm, I'm working at three in the morning but you don't need to work at three in the morning but why didn't you answer my email you know like, well your email was at three in the morning I know well I just happen to be up but but don't work weekends but I, I'll be sending you a few emails and it, it is it is hard because people they don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do. Yeah. And they go, oh, okay. So there's a disconnect between how she says she wants to be treated or how she says she wants us to work, but how she actually is working. And they're learning you. They're not learning what you say. They're learning you and your behavior. So how have you managed that one? Because it is important to have that 
that um, authenticity of what you say and what you do? I, I, I think I'm managing it. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm over it, if you know yeah. what I mean. Because I, I, And I know when I get tired, I'm probably worse. Yeah. So you've got to make sure you keep your physical side up, your mental side up, because I think when you're on your game, you're much better. And some of the techniques I say is I'm quite honest with my team. Of course, I'm going to work at a weekend. Yeah. And because they know as well as maybe my pennies role, I do three non-executive director yeah, roles. So each one of them see you through their optic. So yeah. that helps me, actually, because you can do things at different times because you can say I'm actually working in somebody else today and they don't know you were doing something else at a different time. So your parents were sitting up there on their cloud looking down at Alison and going she's just like us she's got these little businesses going on she's got her main charity which is the CEO of Penny's and then she's a Ned of three and she's just my girl um, now, but thinking back to your whole life just yeah. stepping back one moment um, all the leaders who are authentic enough have had highs and they've had lows and and I am always interested having had you know a number of tough times in my life and, and learnt a lot from them. Um, what, what would be, if you look back, what would perhaps be one of the darkest times of your life and, and what have you learnt from it? It's a really good question, Jonathan. Uh, and I think we all have dark times personally and I think it's how we handle those, uh, really. I think people that say they don't, I'm not sure many people have. Mm -hmm. In working environment, I think... For me, I've always taken tough times and then worked out how do I turn them around? Because I've spent my whole life doing kind of turnaround, technology enabling business change across so many different sectors. Um, but I think there's a, there's a couple of times I remember, one was when I was working with IBM um, and I nearly went to competitor. Right. Um, and I did that because actually I was quite frustrated by the culture and yeah. by where I was getting to. And I felt I had to move to get the opportunity. Um, and then I was talked round by IBM to stay, but they took me outside that team and gave me this huge global role, um, which I was petrified about because mm. I suddenly realised I'd got this opportunity, but I just didn't know what to do. And at the time, it was running the smart card business, where oh, when well. you think of it now, Perfect it was way ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, and actually, suddenly I had a development team in Germany and I had a sales team in the Netherlands and I was out working with the Chinese government and I had to go in and see Lou Gerstner at the time and talk about the strategy. And I nearly completely crumbled. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it would overwhelm anybody. And and, and there are those moments when, and I, and I see it, mm. I see it even now in your face, just, just you remember how tough it was. Tell me about it. It was tough because I thought I was going to completely fail and let everybody down. Yeah. People that had put their faith in me, yeah. suddenly they were right because I was rubbish and I couldn't do anything. And so that was probably what drove me. And then I remember one horrible night where we've all done that, where you've worked till early hours in the morning to get your business plan before you're going over to the States. And for some reason, my computer crashed and it got completely oh, deleted. No. And I don't think I've ever sobbed so much in my life because yeah. there's nothing you could do other than say, well, it can't get much worse than this. Yeah. And actually, that's what inspired me on. I went away for the weekend and joined my family who were away. And they were like, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, <laughs> and you don't need to know this. And we had a super weekend and they patched, packaged me back up together. And I went and I rewrote it in about a quarter of the time it took me the first time because actually it was all here. Yeah, that's often the case. I, I've had it where things have crashed and I've just been literally just frustrated or feel like crying or whatever it is but actually when you just start all over again 
Um, someone taught me the 10, 10, 10. How important is this going to be in 10 weeks' time, in 10 months' time, and in 10 years' time? And mm -hmm. if you look at 10 years, you go, why am I worrying about this? It's just a presentation. But you, you get so absorbed. And, and being as hardworking as you are with such a hard work ethic and also putting back into society as you do with pennies, I imagine you can get quite tired because you're working all hours. And when we're tired things that are really actually not that important, we lose perspective. Have you experienced that? Absolutely. I think we do lose perspective. And it's so important that we continually just work and, and balance and speak with our loved ones. Those of us that are privileged enough to have loved ones, yeah. I think they are such a grounding force. Yes. Because you go and look at them, you talk to them, they remind you, they give you a big cuddle and you kind of think, oh, come on, I've got food on the table, I've got warmth in my, in my, my walls, what is there really to worry about? And so for me, I feel incredibly privileged working with Pennies because we've now supported over 500 different charities, large and small across the country. And to bring perspective, you just need to listen to some of the people that are really struggling in life yes. and how important those charities are, because that says anything you've done in a day is just not important. Yes. And so for me, in the last 10 years, I have a constant reminder every day of the week how blooming lucky I am. And so I don't have as much of that as I did in my working life because I've got it right in front of me all the time. Uh, thank you, Alison. I, I, I think... It's so easy for many of the leaders that I um, am fortunate to work with myself or meet that we can get lose sense of perspective and we go, oh, this isn't great. But they're, they're in the top 0.001% of society. And we know that we've got some really big challenges for the environment and we've got to literally save the planet. Um, and there is such disparity in, in the UK, particularly between the rich and the poor. Mm. And that if you, you know, I'm lucky through the Inspiring Leadership Trust and, and the incredible work that um, Lee and the volunteers do, helping people, the most vulnerable, to get out of some really dark places. And you do this with your charity. And I think it grounds us, doesn't it? Because otherwise you can just get so full of yourself, so up your own rear end. And, and get the ego is the enemy. We get, you know, we get caught with our own self-importance or relative deprivation, comparing us to somebody else who's way richer than us or luckier than us or seems to have it all, but they don't have it all. And when you actually get into their lives, you find it's a complete mess, mm. but it's all a bit of a sham. Not all, some have got some great lives. But, but if there was a story, just, just a brief story of, somebody that's been touched by the work that Penny's done. What was stuck in your mind of, you know, personal story? Could you share? There are so many stories uh, that I've come across with the charities that we've granted out to in so many ways. But when you see young teenagers that sadly have got cancer. Yes. Or you see young people who are homeless and not by their own doing. That's your livelihood that's your roof over your head. Those young people are really, really struggling in society. And so I get so touched when I see some work that End Youth Homelessness does, for example, and through Yorkshire Building Society, which is one of the areas where I'm a non-executive, we support that charity. But that's about getting young people who, through no fault of their own, are finding themselves out in a street, cold, with no money. And there's lots of reasons why you can say it's their fault, but so often it's not their fault. And so to give them the safety of a roof over their head and a postcode, which then helps them start to move forward, is so critical. 
And that for me, and then I look at what Teenage Cancer Trust does, and there's particularly, there's a, actually my, my eldest daughter lost a very good friend to cancer at a very young age, very, very young age, and Tildy was amazing. But what she taught them was how to grow because she was so brave, she was so amazing, she was so young, and yet the friends that were around her that saw the vulnerability of this amazing, young, talented Tildy, and they all go away, and every time they're low, they said, I was privileged to have Tildy in my life, and I think that's special. That's very special. Uh, sorry, I'm just... Uh, hmm. These sort of moments uh, stay with you for a long time, don't they? They do, they really do, and... Um, that young lady called Hildy um, has touched so many young people and she doesn't even know. Yeah. And that's what's special. And therefore, when you look at the busy lives and the 600 pages I'm reading at a weekend and trying to make a difference on the boards where I'm operating and trying to make sure that what we do is as important, how we do it is as important as what we do, which is why kind of moving on from that personal moment, I am so encouraged by the whole growth of companies having to be more purposeful in what they do, mm. having to hold executives to account on what they're doing in the environment, yeah. on yeah. the plastics, what, that making sure the governance is well run. I don't think I ever appreciated growing up in my executive career until I got to a board, how important the role the board plays to help organisations not just set strategy and get the right people, but do the right thing. Yeah. And so the whole surgence of ESG is so, so important as companies. ESG. E for environment, S for social, G for governance. That's fantastic. So, you know, and actually there's no whole analytical companies in the same way you might get S&P or Moody's looking at your financial. You get people like MSCI and Sustainalytics saying, how well are those companies That's delivering cool. on the ESG? And so a number of boards that might have chosen to ignore this a few years ago, they don't have an option anymore. That's and I think that's a real huge step forward so we can take not just the personal individuals, but help companies realise it's not just about the bottom line, it's the footprint they're leaving. Yeah, and this is the, um, uh, what do they call it, uh, altruistic capitalism, this, this whole idea of um, making a difference to the stakeholders, not just the shareholders, not maximising shareholders' funds, but maximising stakeholder funds. Mm and stakeholder uh, impact. That, that is, we've got to do much more in society for that. And this is where individuals like you can make a difference through, you've got an amazing network of people who've contributed to helping pennies make a difference at you or the retailers you deal with, the different organizations. But also I think you've done great work as, as a NED. Um, so congratulations on that. And I just really finally, and thank you. I've, I've found we've ranged far away. I didn't know where we were going to go, and I've I've uh, I've been deeply moved, uh, and I will think about Tilda for some time. Uh, but what would be your final top tip uh, to to people who want to be more inspiring, wherever they are in society, and whatever role they're doing, however big or small, because. Um, People sometimes say, well, you know, I'm just one person, I can't make a difference. But there was that lovely quote that all the biggest changes that have happened in the world have been done by small groups of determined men and women. Um, and that's where the changes happen. What would be your advice to people who are listening about the difference that they could make by being a little better in their leadership or what they do? I, I think I, I, would, I would end with the real focus on it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And for me, if you really want to leave a legacy that you're proud of, 
then make sure you do it in a way that you're proud of it. Yeah, that's a lovely way to end. Alison, I've loved the conversation. We could chat much more. Congratulations on all you do with pennies. Thank you, Jonathan. And as an ad, and, and thank you for your time. Thank you. So, now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <music>